guys, we're in the middle of a pandemic and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state. And this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today. Go to betterhelp.com backslash solving healthcare and get 10% off sign up fees. COVID has affected us all, and with all the negativity surrounding it, it's often hard to find the positive. One of the blessings it has given us is the opportunity to build an avenue for creating change, starting right here in our community. Discussing topics that affect us most, such as racism in healthcare, maintaining a positive mindset, creating change, the importance of advocacy, and the many lessons we have all learned from COVID. If you or your organization are interested in speaking engagements, send a message to quadcast99 at gmail.com, reach out on Facebook at Quadcast, or online at drquadjo.ca. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadjo Karamantang. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Well, guys, Nation, yes, we are back with a very important episode with the one and only Dr. Tracy Hogue. We brought her back. She is clinical epidemiologist. She's expert in public health and she's just been at the forefront in this discussion with, you know, our approach to kids, whether it's masking vaccinations, um, myocarditis and the beginning of our conversation, I really enjoyed it. We talked about what the risk is to our children. What, what is the actual risk of our kids getting ill and, 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 and to come into COVID and also putting it in relation to other, other conditions, which I think adds to the perspective big time. And uh, I think you will thoroughly enjoy this conversation. Just a huge fan of the work she's doing. And, and I'll be honest with you guys, like it's a, it's a tough landscape to, to navigate through talking about, you know, handling COVID for our children. Cause you know, there's a lot of cancel culture out there and certain topics that seem to be taboo for no good reason. And, uh, but you know, for me, I got to say the line that uh, the sand always is my kids. And uh, if you can't stick up for them, I don't know who you could stick up for. Before jumping into it, I just got to give some love to Solve It Wellness. We're growing. We're up over 200 and I think 210 members at the time of this. You know what I'm saying? And it's our way of combating clinician burnout, you know, compassion fatigue, all these things that we're seeing peri-pandemic, on pre-pandemic as well. You go $99 a year or $9.99 a month for online workouts, yoga, nutrition advice, cooking classes, mindful meditation, the works, how we manage stress, productivity tips, all under one platform. First month first month is free. Check it out. Solvingwellness.com. You will not regret it. Change the boogie, yo. Anyway, without further ado, let's bring on Tracy Hope. Quadcast Nation, we're bringing back the legend, epidemiologist, super well 
referenced and amazing advocate for our kids, Dr. Tracy Hogue, a.k.a. Dr. Tracy Hoi, hoi. Sorry, how do you say it again, Tracy? Hey. Yeah, exactly. That's how it must have sounded the exact same. But thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Sorry. Yeah. No, Good job. And I'll say your name right this time too, Quacho. I yes, got it wrong you. last time. So now. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> no, I, I think I, I've been throwing all of us off with that pronunciation. But thank you, honestly. And I got, I'm going to say this out of the gate. The advocacy that you've been doing these days for our children, that voice of reason, I could tell you it's something that's helped me sleep better at night. And I just want to really commend you. Because it takes a lot of courage in these in this climate, you know, and I, I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to um, go follow right behind you in terms of doing what's right for our kids. So I really want to commend you for all this. Yeah, well, that means a lot coming from you. And it takes a team of people because you inspire me, too. And I think, you know, the more we're we're seeing people speak up and, you know, make reasonable statements and, you know, put what we're doing into context. And, you know, I, I think that we, we support each other a lot. So, so thanks for doing what you're doing. Oh man, absolutely. And I think a good place to start Tracy was, um, you know, the risk of COVID with our kids. Cause uh, you know, we'll talk about, you know, not only the risk of COVID, but also the concerns about vaccination, but I think it's people have a tough time really um, articulating what the danger is to our kids. You know what I mean? Like we're really as having that risk assessment. Yeah. So it's, it's a thing that's hard to understand risk, you know? So I can say to you per infection, and this is from international data that the chance of a child being hospitalized if they're infected is one in 500 to one in a thousand. Now it's even less than that for kids without medical comorbidities. It's higher than that for kids with certain medical comorbidities like obesity and immune compromise, neurological disorders. But then, you know, people sort of under, they tend to understand risk in um, when you compare it to other risks that we're more used to. So like, for example, the risk of your child dying from COVID is 10 times less than the risk of your child dying in a motor vehicle accident, or it's depending on the age, it's two to 12 times less than them drowning, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, I think people understand those types of risks better. And then comparing it to influenza, you know, the risk of dying from influenza on an annual basis, except for this last year where there wasn't much influenza, but on a usual year is similar to the risks of dying from COVID-19. Depends on the databases a little bit more, is it a little bit less? Um, but, you know, and then we, we talk about these long-term consequences um, of COVID-19 too. And in the beginning, we didn't really understand how often um, kids were suffering from long COVID. And now we have a few larger studies, um, one from the UK recently showing that there was actually no difference between the kids with that had COVID and the controls in terms of long-term symptoms. So that's not to say it doesn't exist. It's just to say that when you look in a large database of kids, you you can't even detect it. Um, and so it it probably happens. I think we know it happens. It's just much less common than than we initially feared that it was or thought it could be. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and it's a great point that you bring up, uh, Tracy, because the numbers, it's hard to put those in perspective for people. Like when you do say your risk of hospitalization is one in 500, one, in, one to one in a thousand. But when you have it in relation to something that's like tangible, you know, your risk of influenza, risk of dying in a car accident, risk of drowning. And I, I think this is maybe one of the, if we're going to look at, back at this and talk about uh, how we would approach things differently. Maybe that's the conversation and the way we communicate it to the public. Yeah. And, and I would just add also that at least for kids, you know, it was like uh, the, per the CDC data it was a five to 14 year olds were also more likely to die of suicide, you know? And so then mm. when we consider that the pandemic increased the risk of suicide, increased the rate of mental health disorders, like, we also have that discussion and have to have the discussion about what if what we're doing increases their risk of dying, you know, to protect them from one disease. Are we increasing the risk of dying from something else? And, mm. you know, I mean, we can talk about that with like the doubling of the um, the rate of weight gain among kids that we saw in the United States. Like that is not maybe now, but later in their life, that's going to increase their risk of premature death of, you know, lots of health problems. So. We, we also haven't been having that discussion, like a serious discussion about the trade-offs of what we're doing because it's been, there's been hyper-focus on this one disease. And, you know, I think a lot of people, scientists, public health people were thinking, well, once we kind of have an understanding of COVID, you know, after the first four to six weeks and, you know, maybe we can start looking at risks and benefits, but it's like, that just became taboo. It was like, no, we can only talk about COVID because otherwise you're a Republican, you know? Um. <laughs> oh my god it's so true i don't know like that's honestly tracy that was the part that was that was scary for me was when you when it became taboo to talk about the trade-offs like there's no job or profession or where you can't think that Whatever you decide, you got. You're not going to have that consideration of the trade-offs. And it, the thing that was driving me nuts is it became abundantly clear early on that you're you're risking our kids' mental health from our our, our measures, your overall well-being, the weight gain that came a bit later, and when you especially when you recognize what the risk factors of getting sick from COVID is. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like oh, it just, totally. Oh. oh, exactly. And anyone, any parent. They could see this immediately. I mean, I think, I think most parents oh. could see this, like in my own kids, it's like they're out of school for four weeks and suddenly they've like gained five pounds. I'm like, Oh my God. You know, yeah. I mean, ever everyone could see this happening. Like their lives are just shut down. Um, so the fact that it wasn't okay to talk about it, it was like, well, the people deciding it wasn't okay. I, I don't know. Did they, did they not have kids? But yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, was, I mean, I actually, you do wonder like, is, or you, I don't. Maybe their kids are older, or what have you. But you know, usually you relate to your current circumstances, and you know, like you and I are in the thick of it with our kids. And you know, 
you can't just ignore this. Like it's right no. in front of you. And, yeah, no, uh, you cannot ig- ignore kids like, you know, giving up their lives. And, and, and the thing is now the thing that's so frustrating about it is now it's like the whole reason that we were, you know, we were saying, okay, well, it's understandable that we have to minimize, you know, transmission from kids. We feel we, you know, everyone felt like bad for teachers because they didn't want them to be exposed to unnecessary risk. Right. And so then we found there's less COVID spread in schools and in the communities. That was one thing. But now teachers and adults all have access to vaccines. And I, I in the United States and Canada, it's like, well, I see that schools are open, but we're like doing even more mitigation strategies among kids than than we were last year in a lot of places. Like I saw it was Ontario, right, where kids like they're not allowed to talk to each other at lunch. Crazy. Crazy. I, I just I, so I just found this out this this weekend and I was like, what? You can't, they can't speak at lunch? Like, first of all, Tracy, one of the things that we should be absolutely celebrating with this pandemic is the fact that the kids have been like relatively speaking, have been protected. They're, yeah. they're not like you know what I mean? Like this is such a huge relief as a parent, as uh, you know, looking like out uh, forecasting the impacts of the pandemic. Like this is something that we should be celebrating. Then the fact that we it was clear, like thanks to your study and others, that there, there wasn't uh, massive transmission happening within the school. Like it wasn't spreading like wildfire. You know what I mean? And, right. And the fact that, you know, teachers weren't getting like crazy, like all these things. And this is before the vaccine. And then we have the vaccine. We have that much more knowledge. We have that much more uh, community, like less community spread because of our immunizations and so forth. Yet we're still getting we're still acting like we're like, uh, uh, you know, nothing has changed, which to me is baffling. Like, yeah. learn. I, I know. I know. And it's like I. You know, with with regards to this one specific issue with with talking and in lunch and and I would also bring up like masking outdoors, like in our Wood County, Wisconsin study, the kids were eating lunch indoors and they were actually talking to each other. And we, you know, had minimal spread in that study. Very low. It was seven kids, seven of the cases out of the 191 that came into the school were spread at the school okay and the kids were not masking outdoors at recess um you know we can get into masking and the efficacy of that which is a whole you know different topic but but now it's like you know what kids are just being made to be afraid um Mm -hmm. by doing by having policies like that by saying like you know it's not even safe enough for you to take off your mask outside it's not safe for you to touch each other it's not safe for you to talk to each i mean i i don't know i what what are the implications of what we're doing to them and so you know they uh, in terms of their fear of you know how they're going to impact others and you know seeing themselves as vectors of disease and and you know we can we can contrast this with what's happening in Scandinavia and actually most of Europe right now. I mean, in Scandinavia, I, I, I've mentioned this before, but they've never masked kids 12 and under. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, now there are no restrictions. There's no restrictions in Norway, Sweden and Denmark. Um, they've like just zero, like right now it's zero. Life. Like zero. Yeah, zero, zero. I mean, and um, I know I've, I, I have a bunch of contacts in Denmark and I think there's, you know, agreement that, you know, they may start mitigation strategies at some point if necessary, like, 
curtailing the size of large indoor events. And, you know, uh, I mean, they always have uh, paid sick leave there, which is great. But, mm -hmm. you know, I don't see them starting to mask kids on, on uh, 12 and under because they've never they've never needed to do that. And right now their hospitalizations are not above where they were when they lifted all the restrictions. They've just been pretty, pretty stable. Cases are increasing, but, you know, that's not unexpected. Um, yeah. So what I'm hearing from you, just a minute, just because yeah. this is new information a little bit for me, uh, the Scandinavian countries, including Denmark, never vaccine or never um, master 12 year olds and younger. Uh, they've el eliminated all restrictions at this time. Yes, there are increasing cases. Hospitalizations don't seem to be impacted at this time. This is, by the way, October 26, 2021. Um, but uh, and 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 the the spread within schools were similar to the 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 papers that we we know about that as far as you know there wasn't crazy. Uh, so yeah, I mean, the, probably the best study we had about the spread within schools was actually from Norway, and it was very similar to the secondary attack rate that we had in the Wood County, Wisconsin study, the North Carolina study. Um, so so that's that's been pretty similar. Now I will say with. With Delta, I know looking at Australia data that there was that it did look like higher transmission rates in the schools. Um, so, you know, like like you brought up before, we do have to celebrate the fact that the people, you know, those who are at higher highest risk of this disease, there is access to vac vaccinations now. So even, you know, it is. Delta does seem to be more transmissible. I, I don't think there's any way around around that. It does appear to be, but but now we have vaccinations that are are quite effective at at preventing severe disease. You know, for those who are at most at risk. So, mm -hmm. um, and I think that's why you know Scandinavia is like this is this is the COVID end game. Like, is it going to get better than it is right now? Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, there's obviously there's increasing immunity, the more people that get COVID. So maybe, maybe it will, but I think that they're looking at the trade-offs too. And they're like, you know, especially kids, kids thrive with, uh, routines and predictable lives and, you know, getting an actual education and the whole society thrives because, um, the kids are in school and the parents are not, you know, worrying about what's happening to them. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we've touched on this in the last podcast, but, you know, it, it, everything really does need to center around what what is happening, you know, with the with the, with the kids and the most vulnerable, because if they're, you know, they're someplace safe during the day, they're learning, they're happy, you know, then, you know, people, adults, parents, they go, grandparents, they go on with their lives, their work, productive members of society. So, um, you know, normalcy is, uh, is undervalued, I think in the United States and potentially in Canada too, though. I'm not, I'm not Canadian. I can't speak to that as much, <laughs> but, uh, Oh, and by the way, congratulations. I heard your husband is a full-blown citizen now. That's right. I, he just yes. became a citizen of the United States today. Yes. So now I'm allowed to say whatever I want on, <laughs> on your podcast. <laughs> and Twitter, uh, I'm going to become totally unhinged now because uh, now I don't have to worry about that. That's amazing. Gloves are <laughs> off. Um, but this is, I mean, you make really good points that I think are worth uh, highlighting. Like, Yes, I mean, you got to acknowledge the other side too. Like, yes, uh, Delta, more transmissible, um, you know, and in this group, luckily, they don't, and we had this with Martha Fulford saying, like, with Delta, the kids aren't getting more sick as yeah, a result. Yeah. Is, no, that I think is that's key. important to highlight yeah. too. 
Um, That's but, right. Uh, I mean, you'll see more hospitalizations as a result of the fact that there are more cases. But, you know, now the hospitalizations, at least in the United States and kid among kids are, are is falling um, and that, you know, the cases are also going down. So mm-hmm. overall, over the across the whole country, um, you know, despite school being in session. So, yes, yeah. so reassuring. And, yeah. you know, and, and it comes once again, comes back to that kind of the, we talk about the risk benefit, um, risk assessment and some of these other interventions that we're talking about. So whether it is masking, uh, the kids, you know, and I I mean, for, for me, it's what I get a bit uncomfortable with is the masking of the really, really young kids when it's, you know, you're trying to impact their linguistic skills and they're like, those are very formative years for, how the, um, you know, the, their ability to communicate and stuff. But, um, you know, actually, maybe I'll ask you straight up. Like, I see it on Twitter all the time. I avoid commenting because it's so, so dark. Like, it's such a scary world right now. But is there data that you're aware of that that supports uh, masking of, of our youth in general? Okay, so um, this is a really good question. So, Recently, so the CDC at MMWR had two studies that came out um, that both were in support of masking, um, masking kids in schools. Um, but unfortunately, so these were these were pretty flawed studies in the sense that they were missing a lot of critical information to determine exactly what impact the masks had. Um, so, like, for example, there was the Arizona study um, in MMWR, and they found that there were fewer outbreaks in the schools that had um, mask mandates. But they they actually didn't account for the fact that in the community, so it was in Maricopa County. So Maricopa County was the county without uh, the mask mandates, and they actually had a much steeper rise in their cases during among the entire community during the course of the study. And so that was like the most key thing that they didn't control for. Um, And then uh, so we're we're still trying to get information on this. Actually, I'm working with a couple of people to get answers from the authors about this, but they may not have controlled for the number of days or hours of contact between the kids and in 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 school. Um, But I would just say that um, when you look at cases in schools, Historically, with the studies that we've done, less than 5% have come from within the school and 95% come from outside in the community. So what is happening in the community is the most critical thing in terms of the amount of cases in the schools. And if you are not controlling for what's happening in the community, you cannot say anything about the effect of the masks in the schools, because all of these uh, studies, they look at the overall cases among the students. Um, And so that was similar to the fact that like there was another study, including multiple districts across the United States where um, they they didn't they weren't able to control for the community vaccination rates among the adults. So they also found a benefit of masking. Um, without controlling for the adult vaccination rates in the community. And the they didn't control for the fact that there was a faster rise in uh, like more steep rise prior to the study of cases among the kids before the school even started. And then the study only went two weeks. Um, and so there, 
there, it was like both of these studies, they, they had the feel of like, they were cherry picking this very like brief window of like, we're going to find some difference between these two masked and unmasked schools. And we're going to present this as data. And we're not going to control for the key factors that, you know, come from the adults um, and the communities um, in terms of like the amount of cases that you see actually in the schools. So, so those are two studies that are being cited by the CDC right now is like, you know, incontrovertible proof that that masking works in schools, but we, we have no randomized control trial. And then our study from MMWR is also being cited as evidence that masks work in terms of preventing transmission in schools, but we did not have a control group that was not masked in our study. Um, so we can't comment on how effective masks are just like any other part of our mitigation. We don't know what worked and what, what didn't work. Um, and so really you need a, a, a well-designed, you know, control study. Um, and uh, so I'm actually working right now with two school districts um, that are right next to each other in Fargo, North Dakota, one that has a mask mandate and one that doesn't. Um, and uh, so, so far it's been interesting that the one without the mask mandate has had lower case rates than the one with the mask mandate, um, despite actually having lower uh, vaccination rates in the community. Um, and despite actually doing more more testing, like more on-site testing. So, so those results are to come. I, I hope that I can convince MMWR that this might be a worthy thing to publish, you know, once we get get it written up. But it's been it's been interesting to watch because so far I don't think that we we have good evidence in kids um showing that that like mask mandates or mask requirements are doing much. And part of that might be because, you know. It's you can't like it's unrealistic to think that kids are able to wear a mask correctly all day, every day and, you know, not not expose each other. I mean, obviously they take it off. They breathe around it. I mean, and most of these kids are wearing cloth masks. And we already saw in the Bangladesh randomized control trial that the cloth masks actually didn't work in terms of preventing, you know, laboratory confirmed SARS-CoV-2. So. And and they only the surgical masks appeared to work in the context of distancing and education and other things to prevent SARS-CoV-2 among people who are over 50 years old. Mm -hmm. So those are not kids. Um, so, you know, right now we we don't have good data showing that masks, um, you know, decrease the risks risk of uh, SARS-CoV-2 uh, among kids. We have a Georgia study um, that, that looked at the masking in kids in schools. This was an MMWR study. They found no difference when controlling for the case rates. We have the uh, school dashboard, Emily Oster's school dashboard. Um, they also found no difference between uh, uh, student case rates in the masking and non-masking uh, of, of the students and staff. Um, so, you know, we, I, I think we're at the point where we can say that, you know, masking kids, it may have some small effect that we haven't, you know, been able to detect it with any good study yet. It probably doesn't have a large effect. Otherwise, we would have seen it in those observational studies that I mentioned there from Georgia and the school response dashboard. Um, but um, but I mean, I think that a lot of people are not talking about the downsides of masking. So, you know, mm. 
the AAP and CDC are basically saying like that there are not good studies showing the downsides of masking. Now, I will say that France came out with a nice observational study uh, looking at downsides of masking, and they were talking about how they observed um, that the kids were not, uh, you know, the emotional uh, impact of it, like kids were not smiling as much, responding to as much to each other's smiles. Um, the the participation in activities that involved like physical activity was decreased. Um, and then there were concerns about language as well. And I think that, you know, especially parents of kids who um, maybe uh, English is a second language speakers, um, younger kids who are just learning to speak. Um, you know, we, we know that kids who are blind uh, actually do tend to develop language skills a little later. So I think, you know, it's and, and kids with autism. I mean, I can only imagine if you have a child with autism and they're already afraid, you know, to talk to people and make connections that everyone has a mask like what? Of course, that's not going to be beneficial for them. So, you know, I, I certainly I don't have all the answers in terms of all the downsides, I, you know, but but I think it's unrealistic to say there are no downsides. And, you know, just when one considers if you try to, you know, bike or run or, you know, do anything with a mask on, you know, in terms of exercise, how uncomfortable it is, you know, just that alone, I think asking kids to wear masks, like while they're on the playground, playing soccer in PE, like, I mean, if we, if we don't want kids to gain weight and we want kids to be active, like what, what are we doing? Yeah. It's, <laughs> a, it's almost like a deterrent. I mean, I, I still, I, I walk by, Schools on the show have heard me say this before. High school nearby, and the kids are playing soccer with masks on outside. I'm like, what is this? Like, we oh, know, it's, it's like it's so it's so ridiculous. I mean, like, from the beginning, I have said my kids are not playing sports with masks on. I'm sorry, but yeah. you know, and I'm like, hey, I'm a physician. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I I refuse. And so our soccer club has always said no. They're they're not going to play sports. You know, they're not going to play soccer with masks on. Yeah. Um, I mean, you make, make some really good points in terms of the analysis. Like, yes, there's some data uh, that, uh, you know, as for the CDC, that's supporting that, that, that the mask might work on kids, but it's not on solid data. They're not controlling for community spread. Uh, and there's some other data to, uh, to support that. We haven't seen much of a difference. And then logically, when, when we look at the Bangladesh study, when they had uh, showing that cloth masks weren't making a difference. And honestly, most of the kids that you see wearing masks are not wearing surgical masks. Um, and, you know, uh, how they're putting it on, how half the time it's, you could see their noses, um, they're saturated. Like our kids in masks when they come home are disgusting. Yeah. Straight up, like, do rag like exactly ugh. like what are we even thinking that those masks are doing if they're wet and disgusting and like i i, I don't know is that yeah. really preventing transmission uh I, I don't know and like the kids they you know my son he's just like you know we just take it off when the teacher's not looking or we just you know what i mean i i i don't know i mean yeah. it's yeah it's it, I, and, it, and it's just false sense of security too like yeah. if if you've got a kid who's like really at high risk from COVID and you're like, I'm going to send them to school and like a tie dye cloth mask, like, you know, I mean, you should not think like they're not going to get COVID because they're wearing a cloth mask. Like, yeah. um, you know, we saw that in the Marin um, CDC study, but you know, the, 
the uh, the kids were all masking and it was 55% of the kids in the classroom got COVID from the teacher. It's like they all had a mask on. So why are we mm -hmm. saying that masks work so, so well, you know, and, mm -hmm. you know, and adults too, they shouldn't be thinking that like, you know, oh, well, you know, the vaccine's not really that important as long as I wear my mask. Like, I, I don't know. I just, I think our messaging with masking, we've gotten it all wrong. Like, and I think the WHO and the, European CDC, they've gotten it much better. Like, well, you know, masks may provide some benefit in areas of high transmission and certain types of masks are better than others. And, you know, more, you know, acknowledging more uncertainty uh, around it rather than like, you know, I saw the CDC just came out with this ad that looked like it was a two year old in their crib wearing a mask. And and I was like, oh, come on. I mean, oh, this, this kid is like in their own home wearing a mask in their crib. Yeah, like, no. you know, what, what it comes down to me, like I, I heard this on Vinay's show, he, he was interviewing an ethicist from Australia. And I, what he said, really, I've hung on to, he said, you know, the, the foundation of public health is trust. And and part of having establishing trust is, is, is really mentioning the stuff that you're not certain about instead of being absolute about it and be like, as you said, yeah, we think masks have some impact. It's tough to quantify and and yes, we think, uh, you know, there's some uncertainty in, in certain spots, but by being upfront about it and not being shady and being absolute, absolute about things and then going back and forth on it, like yeah. this is how you really create some distrust and hesitancy. Oh, so like, just be just be real. Like most people will appreciate if you just, uh, you know, uh, being authentic about some of the things that you know or you don't know. Yeah, if you're not expressing uncertainty, it just feels like tyranny. And I mean, like people are not stupid, you know, people. <laughs> I think that's been a problem with the CDC all along is they're like, oh, the American people, they're so foolish. They don't know if like we're not including the most important details of everything we say, like um, or if we're not acknowledging that we don't really know the answer. I mean, it's just. Yeah, I, I mean, the, there are definitely ways of saying, like, you know, maybe masks help and we don't really know the answers. And, you know, you might consider wearing like an N95 if you're at high risk and you're not vaccinated, you know, like think, things like that that are actually helpful to people. Like public health is supposed to, you know, provide a service to people, like help them. They're not supposed to be there to just like tell them what to do and you do this or else. Like, I don't know. That's. Not how I, I mean, look at public health. Well, I mean, we're in a completely different world and space right now. Like, I mean, so yes, the, the we in terms of other you know interventions we're doing to our kids. Like, you, I mean, the reason I reached out to you actually was on your paper on myocarditis. Um, this is something that I think a lot of us have been. I'll be full I'll straight up with my people. Like I've been seeing, hearing about this for months and months, but way too scared to bring this up because of seeing people getting canceled. Uh, sorry, guys, I'm getting um, number three is coming in here. Come here. Come <laughs> say hi. You can quickly say hi. Oh. Oh. Hey, <laughs> what's your name? What's hi. Your, what's your name? What's your name? No, what's your name? I'm Tracy. What's your name? Oh, you can't what? hear because uh. I got my headphones on. But what's what's Say, what's your name? What's your name? No, what, 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 do, what, do, what do I call you? Are you Ziki? Say your name. My name. Yeah, okay. <laughs> say, say your Zeke. name. My name. Hi, Zeke. Hi, Zeke. Say hi, Tracy. How are you? Hi, Tracy. She's asking you, how are you doing? How are you doing? 
Do I need to put this? Do I need to put the show back on? Where's what happened to your show? What are you going to do while I'm being interviewed? You're supposed to be. Sorry, one second. You don't travel. <laughs> well, let's go watch some another show. Okay. Sorry about that. I knew it was going to happen. The nanny went to pick up the other two, and uh, <laughs> the, uh, Zeke made his way through. Um, to be honest with you, this has exactly been my motivation of late, like thinking of my little ones. Like I got a three-year-old, a nine-year-old, and a seven-year-old. And, uh, you know, I want to make sure that they're served right. So, Yes, you had this paper on myocarditis. And as I said, there was a lot of us were hearing about some of the concerns about this, but too shy to bring this up publicly. But maybe you could summarize uh, what you what you and your authors found in in the paper. Yeah, so um, we in in the paper, I mean, I'll just kind of, you know, state like our motivations for for doing this study. Um, so. I mean, I, I, I have been very aware for a long time of how low risk kids are from COVID-19. Um, so that's always been at the top of my mind and I have kids myself. Um, and so I've, I've kind of always thought, well, if, you know, when, when, if, when we get to a vaccine, obviously it's going to have to be incredibly safe, especially for kids without risk factors in order for it to make sense in terms of, you know, giving it to the kid itself in terms of the risk benefit ratio. So so that's always been on my mind. And then um, uh, so when we started to hear about the possibility of myocarditis in young men from Israel um, in I believe it was April, um, then I, I was immediately concerned about vaccinating uh, kids, especially boys. Um, and so, you know, I basically just started following along, I think like a lot of people did. And then um, I started hearing from contacts of mine in the United States about cases that they were seeing of myocarditis after the vaccine in boys. Um, and this was this was May. And and I thought, you know, I, I had just no sense of how big this problem was, but I knew that this hospital system in Seattle had seen a large number of cases, according to my contact there. And I thought, wow, this is this is really concerning because this is a very low risk age group to begin with. And we have we have really no sense of how common this is, this post vaccination condition. And so I kept thinking like, oh, you know, the CDC, they'll come out with some data, some study, and we'll all get the information we need. And, you know, I honestly thought they were probably going to pause the, the vaccine just like they did with J&J &J, um, because of the, the VITT uh, safety signal that they found there. Or, you know, I at least thought we would be getting more information, but then so the information never really came, um, although we did get some information in, in June from the CDC um, about their their estimates of the of the of myocarditis. And so immediately it seemed like their so it seemed like their estimates were low. But then it also was like the way that they presented the data was they were presenting it overall for all the age groups and boys and girls together. And when you do that, it's like you just water down the signal where we already knew this was like, 
young men and boys who are getting the signal and after the second dose. So then, um, so Allie Krug and John Mandrola and Josh Stevenson and I, we basically started just kind of looking at the VARES database and we, we came across the fact that there were all these cases in the VARES database that of, of boys um, who had elevated troponins, who had abnormal EKGs and echoes, who were not listed um, under the symptom or di- you know of myocarditis, but they had all the criteria that met it. And the VARES database is the um, vaccine adverse event reporting system in the United States. Um, and so basically we use the CDC's same criteria um, in terms of objective evidence of myocarditis, but we included more cases from the various database of, of, of uh, you know, children that um, had had symptoms um, like chest pain uh, that that were actually not um, looked at by by the CDC. And so we ended up finding and, and then we stratified very importantly by age by sex um, so that we could find if there was any group that was seemed to be at higher risk. And so so we found that there was a one in 6,200 risk of post-vaccination myocarditis in boys after dose two. Um, and this that was in the 12 to set, uh, 12 to 15 year old age group. And then it was uh, so it was one in 10,600 for the 16 to 17 year old boys after the second dose. Um, And then what we did further was we compared that to their 120 day hospitalization risk, just like the CDC had done. But we divided it by, you know, does this boys with comorbidities and boys without? Because as we know that there's a difference between the two and the the difference of risk in terms of hospitalization from COVID, we we found was about 4.7 fold difference. Now, I actually think the risk is probably bigger looking at some more recent uh, data from the UK, but that's what we used. And so what we found was that even at times of high COVID prevalence, the boys without medical comorbidities were more likely um, to have a cardiac adverse event, that's what we called it after the vaccine, then be hospitalized for COVID-19 over those 120 days. And that was without adjusting for the fact that 40% of those are incidental hospitalizations, like incidentally found COVID-19 diagnosis on hospitalization for something else like, you know, knee injury or- Coming for your- eating disorder admission and right yeah exactly exactly so so um that that so that's what we found and i i mean the point of the study was not in any way to um start like induce vaccine hesitancy or to support that the point of the study was you know is is there potentially a demographic or an age group where the risk benefit ratio for vaccinating them is not obvious, you know, and, and, and that's what we found. Like it, it, it's not obvious in that particular group. And, and now in our, we're, we actually have, uh, you know, revised the paper and we're, now we're submitting again. And I will say that we were very close to getting it published in two of the world's top medical journals after they peer reviewed it. And there was quite a lot of debate about whether or not they were going to publish the study. Um, 
And uh, but we did uh, get a lot of feedback from those journals that was really useful. And we took that into consideration when we revised it and before we uploaded it as a preprint. And I will also say that immediately before we uploaded as a preprint, the thing that convinced me that we should upload it was that the FDA had reported a rate of one in 5,000, which is higher than what we had found. Um, and so I thought, okay, well, you know, VARES, you know, the database we use historically does provide an underestimate of adverse events. And so I think that's what we had. Um, and so then we felt more comfortable, you know, publishing it. Um, but, you know, I, I, I do think that in boys without medical comorbidities, you know, giving a second dose particularly, um, is, you know, might not be the smartest thing to do. You know, I think we need to have discussions about uh, giving just one dose. And that's why I was gonna say we adjusted for in our revision is looking at the benefits of just one dose versus the two doses. Um, and then looking at what about kids who have been infected before? Like, you know, from what we know from adult data, they have um, maybe in terms of prevention of hospitalization, if you believe the Israeli data that they're 6.7 times less likely to get hospitalized than those who have been fully vaccinated. So it's, you know, I think we need to be having discussions about um, do kids who have uh, kids who have been infected, do they do they benefit, do, you know, especially boys, especially the second dose? Are they benefiting from the vaccine or are they more likely to be harmed? And then, you know, how much benefit does one dose provide? And might that be something we we should look at? And especially in terms of vaccinating um, healthy, otherwise healthy boys. Um, so I've really been disappointed and frustrated, I guess, about the lack of open conversation about different options um, that might work better uh, for children and for boys in particular. And I have two boys myself. Um, and, you know, I'll just say I haven't really, I, I, the only place I ever said this was in my column in Ultra Running Magazine, but I myself had a cardiac uh, uh, reaction to the vaccine back in January when I didn't even know it was a thing. Um, but I talked about it in there. And so, you know, I, I am afraid that my kids uh, are at higher risk because of the reaction that I had. And now my son's school, he's 13, is mandating him to be vaccinated by November 30th in order to get an education. And, you know, I, I'm he, he hasn't been vaccinated yet. And I would love to know more information about this condition. And, and I know many parents feel the same way. And I'm, I was, I wanted to get vaccinated as soon as I could, because for adults, especially, you know, especially adults who haven't been infected, the risk benefit is, is I think very obvious. Very clear. Um, and so this is a different story with kids um, in terms, especially in terms of can can we just give one dose and what about the kids who've been previously infected? And we're not having any discussion about that when we're talking about the mandates. Um, First of all, Tracy, I'm, I'm sorry that you're, you're having to be put in this circumstance. It's one of my biggest fears, to be honest with you, you know, when you want to do what's best for your kid and we can have an honest conversation about it based on policy and you know, if you think about the VIT, 
you know, we we saw a harm signal and we adjusted policy as a result. We we did we did that for our for our adults and uh, and for some reason. And I I mean I should I should mention this too. Um, in actually, I'll say this and then I'll mention. For some reason, we don't seem to be as concerned about it for our kids when we do the math of you know, that risk benefit ratio. And what I love too, is that people that have, have sounded the alarm and say, Hey, there's harm that could be done to our youth or male youth. Here's a solution. Maybe we give a single dose, maybe we do seroprevalence or check their antibodies and just offer a single dose after that. Or, or you know what I mean? Like there could be some concrete solutions to this, to this problem. And uh, the fact that we're not entertaining it is is baffling to me. Yeah. The, ca- the caveat I would say is some of the people, and this is my experience just from talking to folks. And I, I don't, aside from one example I could think of is that there doesn't seem to be evidence that the kids that have had myocarditis, that they've had significant long-term consequences for the most part. And, and I don't know if that's been your experience to perusing the data or talking to some of your cardiology colleagues. Well, I mean, in the Israeli studies, um, there was, there was a patient who had a, you know, cardiogenic shock and another study there was a, there was a patient who died. Um, it was, I believe it was out of Korea. I'm so sorry. I don't remember, but there was yeah. a person who, who just died of, of vaccine induced uh, myocarditis that they were able to do an autopsy on. I mean, I will, uh, I will say that you are right, that it seems like most of these cases are mild. And that is what I have heard that this is like transient elevation in um, troponin, you know, which is a marker of cardiac damage. I mean, that can happen and, but uh, it can even happen after running a marathon. So it's important for people to know that that can happen. It's rare that it happens for other reasons, but it can, but, um, but there are, these cases where there's um, late gadolinium enhancement on the cardiac MRI in these kids and, um, you know, talking with John Mandrola, um, who is a co-author, he's a cardiologist on our paper, you know, that that can predispose to cardiac arrhythmia, sudden cardiac death later in life. And I would just say that, you know, when we're looking at these cases reported to through the VAERS system, they're all symptomatic. These are like, you know, these are cases with symptoms. And and so we may not be detecting the complete extent to which this is happening. And we also we, we don't know. I mean, if it's not symptomatic, I would assume it's less likely to have long term outcome. But but we're kind of like putting the cart before the horse here because we are mandating that these kids are vaccinated in order to get a public education and to play sports before we even have the full information on the safety data. And we have these trials where we don't even have enough participants to detect this sort of safety signal. We can't, we, there's not enough participants to get severe disease or myocarditis. Mm. And then it's like, okay, well now it's approved. And not all you know, not only is it approved, but, but you have to get it for your kid in order for them to be educated. And then it's like, okay, so now the kids are paying the price even more because, you know, if, if their parent says, you know, I don't feel comfortable with you being vaccinated, 
Now the kid's paying the price because the kid's like, now I have to drop out of school. I lost all my friends and my sports and everything because my parent doesn't want me to get vaccinated. So it's like, there's so many levels of badness in this. I feel like. Yeah. I mean, we got to always think of the unintended consequences of some of our actions, like the, uh, like some of the mandates as as like you said, like often I'll be, for example, a lot of the hesitant are in racialized communities where they're marginalized already. It's, you know, they're just trying to catch up. And then if you have a parent that is saying no to vaccinate my kid, because like I had a person reach out recently that kid already had COVID and they're, they're worried that about the myocarditis signal and all these things. And I mean, they're yeah. legit, they're legit questions. Absolutely. And, it's and, like, and, and they are, they do appear to be at higher risk of post-vaccination myocarditis if they're already infected, have been infected. And then, well, how much benefit are they getting from this vaccine? That is not answered. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly it. Like, what are we trying to uh, accomplish, essentially? Like, uh, is it the risk to the kid? Is it... You know, that's why I have I've been having a tough time with some of these uh, these issues. Like like my my biggest fear right now is the the five to eleven year olds. Um, you know, we're looking at eleven hundred and thirty kids that have received the vaccine in the in the in the Pfizer study, and we're gonna I'm, I'm sure it's gonna be approved and as you just mentioned, to determine a safety signal based on 1,130 kids or whatever the number, I might be off slightly. Um, I think it was a larger hard. amount of kids in the five to 11 year old trial. I think it was- Yeah, it was 2,200 plus that, that were randomized or that were in the trial, but half of them got placebo and half of them, unless I'm drinking. Um, <laughs> Which is totally now, possible. Now I, now I, now I had to look it up. As yeah, yeah, you can look it up as yeah, But uh, from my understanding, it was about eleven hundred kids that have physically received the vaccine. Um, it's just what my concern is. As I said, it was like it's hard to to be able to find a safety signal uh, based on that in a group that is so low risk, you know. And and so luckily, you know, there's. Reduced dosing. There's, um, you know, which which I think is is uh, will be um, hopefully a mitigating strategy for side effects. But uh, I just I'm nervous that they'll mandate it without having clear and uh, yeah, when, without without having a large enough pool of kids to really have that evaluation. Yeah. No. I I, I have the same I have the same concern. Um, and uh, yeah, <laughs> like it was all based on, um, you know, uh, like the the antibody response and the number of of cases, which are which are mild cases. And, you know, I yeah, it's uh, I mean, a lot of people have argued like, you know, it's not an emergency. So why are we rushing through that? And I through the approval and, you know, I struggle with that because it's like, well, some kids are at high risk and I. And I do want them to have access to the vaccine, but, and I want, you know, parents to, you know, be able to be offered to give it to their kids if they do feel like they're at high risk or they have someone in their family who's at at high risk, who's maybe like my, my husband's a bone marrow transplant physician. And I, I do think about like, you know, the kids of those patients, like I, I understand them wanting to minimize the risk, but at the same time, it's like, 
you know, I want parents who feel like their kids are very low risk to be able to make an educated choice rather than being told what to do. And, you know, once again, I think in Scandinavia, I, I, I always look to them as like, well, what are they doing there? And it's like, so they, you know, they are offering the vaccine um, to the kids and it's, it's up to that. It's up to the parents and the pediatrician, you know, to decide if they want, you know, to, to, to vaccinate the kids. And I, I think that that's, I think that that's the way to go. And you've probably been following along that they're not recommending the Moderna vaccine there, but the Pfizer one because of the myocarditis um, signal, but yeah, and it's, it's it's you put it eloquently. It's a personal risk, personal risk to your kid. If my kid is a high risk getting sick from COVID, that's a different story, right? Like it is, it's you know, it's that risk benefit assessment, and uh, this is something that you know, as the first thing you mentioned, and you when we talked about this on the show, is like this is a important part of any decision we make in medicine in life. You know, I'm going to marry my wife. What's the risk benefit of that bad boy? You know what I mean? Like, uh, <laughs> you know, like, is this everything is, you know, you got to look at both sides of the coin. And as you mentioned as well, Tracy, like when it came to us, I, I had no doubt this is the right play for, um, you know, getting myself vaccinated. And uh, when it comes to my, my, you know, young children, I think I would want to know more data, you know, than the, we'll, we'll, we'll say between 1,100 and 2,200 kids evaluated. How about that? We know COVID has been long and hard, but we can do something amazing together during this holiday season. I'm Kevin Crow, founder of Give a Mile, and we provide flights for people to be together that are dealing with palliative or critical care. Flights for mothers, fathers, sons, sisters, daughters, and this holiday season, we're looking to give 40 incredible gifts of flights away from November 1st to January 1st. And this is where we need your help. We want to get connected to families that could use these flights. So if you know of a family that could use this incredible gift, please email us at info at giveamile.org. That's info at giveamile.org. And to find out more about Give a Mile, go to giveamile.org. Let's make this holiday season an incredible one of joy. Well, gas station. Sorry, we we did take a quick interlude to c- confirm our numbers because I I believe Tracy was right saying that there was over twenty two hundred kids that actually did receive the vaccine from five to eleven, and we also had uh, an interlude because I uh, almost uh, broke my kid's finger by accident there when uh, he put his finger in the door and it was closed and oh my goodness. But we are back and so so sorry about that but the moral of the story for me is i as most parents would want to want to do you just want to make sure that risk benefit ratio matches up um uh and hopefully with the reduced dose uh and as we see numbers come through that the the safety signal will be um will be there and um um because yeah this is yeah and 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 I will just say that, you know, even with the you know, if it's one thousand, two thousand, three thousand, it's actually still unlikely that you're going to find that safety signal that's one in five thousand. Um, and it just like they didn't find any severe disease in the uh, in the placebo placebo group, you know, it just highlights how rare these bad outcomes are, both from the vaccine and 
um, from, from COVID-19 itself. Um, and I, I'm not trying to make it seem like they're, they're equal to each other. Cause I realize that if the overall infection and hospitalization rate for a given child in that age group is like one in 500, that that's not the same as one in 5,000. Um, but like we've been talking about, um, you know, it, the question is how much circulating disease is there? Is there a better way to do this in terms of just giving one dose or is there, uh, you know, kids who have already been infected, um, you know, how much do they benefit from the vaccine at all? And, you know, how much in terms of preventing transmission to others, you know, how much benefit are we seeing? Like, you know, that's been really hard to quantify because if you're now looking, like, if you look at the study out of Qatar, I thought that was pretty, pretty interesting. Um, like only, uh, it's only 20% efficacy in terms of preventing actual infection, you know, I think it was five months after, after the, uh, after the vaccine. And then in the UK, they've been seeing in actually really similar rates of like positive SARS-CoV-2 tests in, in vaccinated and unvaccinated people now, because it's been many months after vaccination. So we, we do have to admit that these, vaccines are not creating like any sort of sterilizing immunity. Like there's not mm -hmm. going to be any guarantee that you're not going to get it or transmit to other people. So, you know, if we had initially hoped that vaccinating kids was going to bring us down to zero COVID, you know, that's, that's not, that's not a realistic goal. Um, also because I know a lot of people bring up, there are a lot of animal vectors um, that we're not vaccinating as well. <laughs> Um, it, oh man, that's uh, that's nuts. Um, the uh, <laughs> I don't the, know uh, if you know that they like called all these mink in Denmark, like they just killed them all, millions of mink because what? they realized that they were infected. This was last winter. Um, I was like, whoa, um, because they thought that there was going to be like some dangerous mutation coming from the mink, and you know, now we realize that deer get it and cats and I, I guess even dogs like there's a whole list of animals that 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 can can get COVID-19 now I, I don't know about the transmissibility from them but wow. um, no I mean you do bring up good points like uh, you know that you could still transmit uh, when vaccinated but you know you're I think there's not to this we'll assume not to the same degree and it's hard to quantify the Israeli data I think was yeah, about yeah. 50% 50% less risk of transmitting but um yeah I, I think the mindset we all have to have is we'll be exposed to COVID at some point but it's way better to have that if with a, a level of immunity uh for sure um the, the one thing I think would be nice to end off with a little bit was some of the the work you've done with sports and reducing transmission during sports. Cause you know, I got, I got some boys in hockey and I know uh, you got an athletic family. So maybe uh, you could talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so I did a, a, a study with um, a, a, like a, basically like a hockey team and Allie Krug, another epidemiologist, and it was a, a, you know, select teams. And we were looking at over an entire hockey season, like after there was an outbreak that was associated uh, with a picture night among the teams that 
eventually ended up tracing back actually to an adult male who reportedly was masked, interestingly enough, um, like how we could, how prevention of transmission, you know, this was before um, vaccine, before vaccines were available um, for kids, at least this was in the winter of 2020, 2021, um, you know, how we could prevent um, in hockey transmission. This is an indoor sport. Um, and so we ended up uh, basically being really um, strict about how many adults were allowed indoors um, and that adults did need to be masked, um, you know, very um, so communicating about kids having very subtle symptoms and getting them tested or keeping them home if they had the subtle symptoms. Um, and then uh and then the kids, um, basically, they put on all their athletic gear and got ready to do everything outside before they came in. So they kind of had everything ready to go before the practices and the games. Um, and then we were able to go through an entire uh, season um, without any uh, without any transmission after the uh, after the protocols. And the kids, importantly, were unmasked. Um, during the during the the practices and the games um according to the world health organization you know kids are not or no one is actually supposed to exercise um uh wearing wearing masks um and so you know that that was part of our protocol and plus we also just found you know according to the the coaches the kids were really not able to wear masks during the during the practices and the games because their goggles were just fogging up and they couldn't see anything. So it really wasn't um, a practical thing to do. So, so yeah, we had 148 uh, players and 15,000 athlete hours of exposure. And during all that, um, the kids were unmasked. We minimized the amount of adults um, in the, in the facilities and then had them just gear up and do all the, on, you know, the stuff that didn't need to be done on the ice, like outdoors, basically before they came in. Um, and it ended up working out really well. And there was high community transmission during the time of the study. So, you know, it was, it was not, a, this was not a, uh, this was an observational study, not a con case. It wasn't a randomized control study. Um, but we, we were able to, you know, see, see no evidence of spread on the team, even though some players were found to be positive later after they had practiced, they didn't transmit it during the, during the actual practice or the games. And this is, it's similar to what we had seen like in, in outdoor youth sports. Um, like, uh, I don't know if you've seen this study. Uh, it was uh, Watson um, at all. And they were looking at uh, uh, 90,000 kids over an entire summer and uh, playing soccer, none, none masked. Um, and then there was one, transmission event potentially related to the entire uh, summer of soccer. And then um, also in those same lines, uh, the same the same group from Wisconsin that did that study, some of the same uh, authors, they, they looked at um, high school sports, indoor and outdoor and the correlation with um, masking and not masking. And they didn't find any correlation when you control for the community case rates. Um, and so yeah, it was, uh, you know, it kind of highlights that at least in our study, um, if you 
keep the exposure time down kids you know at least with this was pre-delta were not spreading as it didn't appear they were spreading as much as adults um we tried they were asymptomatic so less less likely to spread that you know we were able to keep the transmission it appeared to be a, at zero for that in, entire season um so there you know if you get creative and you prioritize doing the right things for kids. You can find ways to do things to minimize risk and still allow them to, you know, play sports and um, and and have their normal lives. So that was one of the reasons I was pretty excited about this study. Uh, yeah, I was excited because you, you you're basically going with you're adapting to the knowledge that you have. Like you know, uh, you know, outdoor transmission way less likely. Um, exposure time matters so like you know if you don't need to be indoors change and don't do it like I, I the reason i think it's important to highlight is that if we could use these uh risk mitigation with stuff that we know is effective uh you could you could win like especially if it's you know i don't know what the future holds in terms of like the the winter but you know i'd rather have these mitigation uh uh attempts be put in place and shutting down hockey again yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, like like I, we just, you know, like it was just like with schools, like we have to do what we can be creative with what we can do. And now we have this incredibly important tool, which is the vaccinations. Right. And so now it's like if we can vaccinate those that are especially at highest risk and the adults, especially like, you know, we, we really don't have excuses for 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 shutting things down that is, you know, unless absolutely necessary. And and and, you know, again, it's like we we need to prioritize kids normalcy over over adults and we've talked about this before um they they're they're the lowest risk and they they lose the most they they lose the you know their their childhoods if we're not you know um if we if we don't choose to try and do the 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 best that we can for them so absolutely and then they got their whole lives ahead of them and, and the stuff that the way we handle this can affect their 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 generation and in, in, in the next so I you know we're I'm definitely speaking to the to the choir here and uh once again Tracy just just huge props huge thank you for all that you're doing to to really advocate for the kids to make sure that they have a voice to treat them well and and educate the public on hey you know uh are we are we serving our kids well, are we looking at the risk benefit of our actions and, and really thinking like having that second order thinking of like what is going to happen down the road? And um, it takes courage. And you like your your, your husband no longer has to worry <laughs> just in, in case you were old. He is he a is, citizen yeah. now. OK, so uh, so. But yeah, Tracy, oh, I just much love. Thank you so much for doing this. As always. Uh, th thank you so much. Um, I, I really appreciate it. Um, I just want to say that, like, you know, we humans work better together and, um, you know, no one alone has all the answers. And so it. You know, I, I really appreciate the other people that have been, you know, willing to uh, do the research and try to prioritize kids and get answers and ask the important questions in terms of, you know, are we doing the right thing? What's the best way to do this? 
and do it in an apolitical way. So we're not, you know, seeing each other as, as the enemy, but seeing each other as resources so that we can work together to find, you know, the, the best answer possible. Um, so I just want to thank you and, and everyone else that has been willing to contribute to that fight. Um, so. Well, thank you. I would blush. I kind of am blushing. You can't tell, but I am. But uh, honestly, thanks again. Thank you. Quadcast Nation, tell me we weren't throwing down knowledge on that episode. Thanks again, Tracy. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, at Quadcast. Leave any comments at Quadcast99 at gmail.com. Check out Sovereign Wellness, SovereignWellness.com, where we're dealing with the, that's our antidote to clinician burnout. You won't regret it. Leave that five-star rating, baby. Straight up, helps with the visibility of the show, allows us to continue to change. Dead boogie. Thanks so much for listening. We're going to connect again real soon. Peace. Peace.